finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about them. Sometimes those things are completely bonkers, as is the case with what we read for this episode, which is Volume 7 of The Wicked and Divine, uh, by Jamie McKelvey and Garen Gillen and Clayton Cowles and Matthew Wilson and whatever order those are actually supposed to go in. Uh, it's it's called Mothering Invention. It is the we are in the final stretch. This is the the last of this is the last third. This is the beginning of the last third of the book. Yeah, I think of the it, series. I think it it looks like there's volume eight. It is a compilation of interludes. There's a Christmas issue. There's a couple different things thrown in there. And then episode, volume nine, finishes the series. Yeah, that's the final volume, the conclusion. Uh, I believe that is like a naturally reached conclusion. They were not, you know, when it's an image book, image books are almost never canceled, quote unquote. I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm doing this reassurance that it's like the, the story got to where it needed to get to, but I am. Well, this one compiles... Issue 34 to 39, and it was published in 2018. Yes. And this one is bananas. Yeah. So, the big thing that happened at the end of the previous volume, the very end, was the reveal that Minerva saying that she is a non-key, the revelation that the three gods that we thought were dead are in fact alive as talking heads... Sakmet is actually dead because her head got chopped. Her head got chopped in half, and that Woden is not actually Woden, but or Woden is not actually a god, but is actually David Blake, who is the father of the real god Mirmir, Mirmir, who is a who is also a living talking head, as he is in mythology, right? And he's David's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Blake. We we had initially been led to believe that John Blake was Woden, and then it turns out that he's, one, he's not Woden, and two, Woden is actually his dad being a mega creep, which is like a real, I think this, this series is more, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Not nihilistic, that's not the word I want here. Fatalistic, maybe? Then, then I... It's, it's constantly surprising me with that, which I think is a good thing. Like, there's another big twist in this volume that's the same way where it's like, don't don't have faith in, in certain people exactly. or gods. But you know what? When I, I was kind of confused about what was going on in the previous volume. And then when I started reading this and I got to the first page and I was like, oh. okay. It's, you know, it starts out by saying it happened 6,000 years ago. And I'm like, oh, this is good. I sit down, mm. I start reading. I'm like, this is going to explain everything that goes on. And then as I'm reading it, I realize that I'm more confused than I was before I started reading the volume. This volume answers a lot of questions and does not affect the net level of confusion that I possessed in this book. Things are more, certain things are ostensibly more clear. I still don't, er, I think a good way to put it is, this volume explains a lot of why things are happening, but leaves the question of how open pretty fully. So, because, like you said, this 
I think there are flashbacks that run throughout this volume that start in the beginning of the first issue that are set in the distant past that essentially explain... Explain is maybe not the right word. But explain what... Uh, Ananki's motivation, basically. And I think we, maybe we should just go over everything we learned from those flashbacks right away rather than jumping back into them as they pop up in our discussion of the current day plot. Do you want to start by telling what you understood that happened? Sure. And then I will tell you what I learned. I'll exla- and we'll see maybe some of them are the same thing. I'll explain what I think think is happening from what, my understanding of it. So we start with a flashback to like caveman times, basically. The mythic past. So so far into the BC as to to be the mythic past, essentially. And we learn that Ananki was and, and, alive back then. She's not a necessarily a god, but some sort of primordial superhuman. And she has a sister who I don't think she's supposed to be, I think, Persephone. But she's attached to Persephone or created Persephone. I think at one point further on, the sister who who never gets a name specifically says that when they just hash out how the recurrences will work, says that one of the rules is that her god yeah. is the last to be born and has to be in every recurrence. We'll, we'll get to this because I have a, I think I understand this maybe. Okay. So <clears throat> let me clear my throat. Let me take a sip of coffee too. Uh oh! Now you're now Professor Nate is going. <laughs> okay, so they're, they're it's in the mythic past, and there's this. They're Ananki and her sister are some sort of primordial superhumans. They are not gods, and they're especially not gods in the way that gods are understood in this setting. Ananki is after immortality. This lends credence to a theory I've been developing for a long time. Which is that any long-running serialized story eventually becomes about the inevitability of death. Uh, But Ananki is after immortality. And she's doing some sort of ritual that involves collecting severed heads. Four of them. Four of them. She has a bag of heads already. Like The flashback opens with her approaching her sister who she's been running for a long time and is now like... Come to terms with the fact that she's going to die. She's also brought along her grandson, uh, who I imagine is a character who will become more important later, because I don't fully understand what his deal is. And when her sister, Ananki, shows up with the bag of heads, they have this conversation where they invoke some sort of story game and then take turns laying out rules, which are the rules of the recurrence. So rather than being what we had been led to believe it is, which is like a ritual to stave off of this cosmic darkness, it seems more accurately that the recurrence is a ritual to stave off a much more mundane form of darkness, which is the the darkness of death that will claim Ananki. And the rules they lay out are, you know, like the gods will show up, Ananki needs to get four heads, they all need to die before it's over... Her sister's god, who is Persephone, will appear last. And 
a non-key has to die before the ritual is over. And so I think the idea is that, like, a non-key is her own being, and then she is sort of always reincarnated as Minerva. See, here's what I get. And then the old Ananki dies and Minerva becomes the new Ananki. And I think that's the deal with Persephone and Ananki's sister. She is Persephone, but she's also her own being, of which Persephone is a recurrent incarnation. Yes. Does that make sense? That makes sense. The In the issue, it says that rule number one is that Ananki is the mother and the crone. And the sister is the maiden. Okay. Which would make... It's kind of like, in my mind, this, like, time-traveling battle between two sisters. Yes. And this this is what confused me, because I had this idea that Anaki was Anaki and Minerva was the sister. But as you go through the flashbacks and they have these sort of... It seems that the roles change. There's, like, nine pages of nine-panel grids of them meeting and fighting or reconciling or whatever over the course of millennia leading up to the moment when Anarchy unsuccessfully tries to kill Persephone in what was that like volume three volume four yes but it's it turns out like in the recurrence there's always Anarchy and her sister who may or may not be Minerva and in some instance in some manifestation the three of them are also involved with Persephone. No, Persephone is the sister. Persephone is the sister. Minerva and Anarchy are the same it, Yeah, that's being. where it gets confusing. They're the same person, but they somehow exist at the same time. And I think the idea is the old lady one always dies. And, Minerva. and then Minerva ages into being the old lady one. And then is in charge of the next... Because that's why the recurrence happens every 80 years, right? So that's enough time for her to grow into being an old woman. So that's kind of like different from what you were led to believe in the earlier volumes. In that Anaki, in, 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 at some point she even tells Persephone that she stays awake and waits for the gods to come back. Which she... Meaning, implying that she's the same entity all the time. Yeah. But she's just sort of shape-shifting into the body of Minerva who's always really young, which makes sense, because then she can live the longest in as Anaki in Minerva's body. Okay, yeah. I think maybe the way to think about it is like a computer file. <laughs> Minerva is a backup of Anaki. She is a different instance that contains all of Anaki's memories. And then the previous instance dies, and she carries on. So it's like a weird kind of false immortality, where she keeps dying, but her memories and motivations are carried forward into the next incarnation every time yeah and i think the thing is is that this the the recurrence happens like you said not because they're trying to stave off the darkness which at some point i had this idea that the darkness was something that anaki told to especially to ball to make him do something that would help her i think it kind of is that but I think it's literally maybe just like it's death. Like it's the personification of death coming to get her because she keeps escaping. And that's why it kept going after Minerva when they were fighting in the previous volume because it's just trying to kill her. But I think what's most important to remember about the flashbacks, even though it doesn't clarify a lot, 
there's a lot of this sort of motif that is set throughout the other volumes that you now see the genesis in this flashback. The pattern of four, mm -hmm. the sort of the way that the recurrence happens, this sort of implied danger of coming of the darkness, this kind of severed heads that you see, and now a new motif of the mouths being sewn shut. Yeah. It, it also clears up some other important stuff, too. We know now that Anarchy picks, just picks who gets to be the gods. It's not a thing about, like, her finding their essential nature and, like, reincarnating them. It is what it seemed like when we learned about Baphomet, where she just decides who gets to be what god based on, like, whatever's going to be most useful to her. Uh, we also, where was I going from that? There was another thing that it felt like we learned. I lost it. I can't remember what I was going to say. I also think it's important to... I lost what I was going to say. Uh oh <laughs> Oh, one of the things that I came to realize is that this... I think I was... This is why it's really good writing. I think I was focused unnecessarily on the value of that machine that mm -hmm. Woden creates. But I think that the machine is just a red herring. Yeah, well, I'll get into that in a second. I remembered the other thing I was going to say. Which is we also get confirmation, I think, implicitly through the time scale of these flashbacks, that the gods that I guess are created by Anarchy during each recurrence are the inspiration for those gods in mythology rather than the other way around. Yeah, that would make sense. It's like she comes up, she must be like coming up with these ideas. Because it's all about stories, right? So then she's kind of reframed as like the grand writer of the story of human mythology in a way, which I think is like highlighted by at one point in this volume, we get a flashback with her hanging out with Robert Graves. Yeah, and I think that that makes sense because the gods seem to come like in a sort of pattern. Mm -hmm. Like this most recent recurrence, they're all sort of death or light gods. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what happens. Um, so yeah, I think the machine, we're pretty much told almost explicitly that the machine is a red herring because we get... At one point in here, a flashback to a conversation between Anarchy and Minerva, where, Min where they're like, they're going to use the machine, yeah, to throw them off the trail to, to make sure that they don't realize that Minerva and Anarchy are connected. And this is also where I think it sort of um, really confirms the idea that she grows into being Anarchy, because she talks about like, oh, the machine's going to like cut me up, but it can't just has to be like on the arms and chest and stuff nowhere to expose because then it'll make it too easy for them to trace me to the version in the next recurrence like the idea like if they scarred her face they would be able to tell like oh minerva died with a weird mark on her face and then anarchy has it like maybe they're the same person so the like, thing the machine is like it's a big box with knives and the knives are the only part that's actually functional i think that makes sense too because i think it was sort of um, Anarchy's problem that she had with like Cassandra before she became Erdor was that she was spending too much time investigating what was happening. I think that's also why she recruited uh, David Blake. Like for both of them, that's like, okay, here's the people that are paying the most attention to what's going on. I'm going to distract them by giving them like fame and importance and having them buy into this narrative for themselves that i've constructed so they don't actually see the real right, thing right because i think they um some of the gods that anarchy brings in the recurrence she needs for the ritual 
And some of them she doesn't. Yeah, I think a lot of them are distractions. Yeah, and I think what happens with those are they they're kind of like left to their own devices. Like the Morrigan and Baphomet, like that story sort of unfolds and Anaki doesn't care and doesn't have anything to do with what happens to them. It makes me think that maybe she picked them specifically because they're so chaotic. That they'll cause a big... Like, this feeds back into the... What honestly was kind of, like, slipping away from this story for a while, which is the fame metaphor. This really brings it back to the forefront. It's like, okay, like, she's essentially creating reality television, bread and circuses, to distract people from this grand, selfish game that she's playing to extend her life. I think this is perfect because what's happening after they cut back from the previous recurrences and they start going back to what's happening in the storyline this this issue opens with the nords talking about which one of the destiny child yeah. they are compared to erdor and then as they're talking about it something happens and they're transformed it's when they get put in the cage yeah they get the the cage sort of controls erdor's godly powers so the Nords who are outside of it end up going back to their human self. Yeah, it's like a divine Faraday cage, I yeah. guess. It cuts off. So then it becomes clear that like their all their powers is just something that's being transmitted into them. Right. From which, Erder. Which becomes important later on because then we see sort of what Woden ends up doing, which is very similar <laughs> to what Anaki was doing. And that rules, by the way. I'm very excited to get to that part. All right, but before we move on from the like the big flashback revelation info dump stuff. Um, can we talk about how fucking rad Anarchy looks in the flashbacks? Yeah, that I mean, that's, I mean, she kind of always has this really, like, heightened, like, look to her, you know, with a lot of, like, face veils mm-hmm. and makeup and stuff like that. But I think that, yeah, she can't, she really does look like a warrior in... Yeah, she has, like, a mask made out of, like, a skull with long like antlers on it and she's wearing like a robe and carrying this like bloody sack and this stone dagger on the cover there the the cover for this volume is a um like an ancient stone dagger with a like a snake wrapped around it Mm -hmm. which is like a visualization of like the snake is persephone or her sister or whatever and then the dagger represents her i'm wondering if maybe the sister like because it's like anarchy and minerva like it's the two names i'm wondering if maybe the sister is Kronos, who is supposed to be Anarchy's counterpart in the... I think the two options... The two things I can think of for what her actual name is besides Persephone is Kronos, because that's Anarchy's counterpart in the Prima Genitoi, or Demeter, who is Persephone's mother. Or she's Hades? I think... (laughs) I mean, it could be either one of those, but she's definitely... Whatever she, whatever her godly powers lean towards, has something to do with time or the extension of time, yeah. which would make sense because I think that's one of the reasons why Anakin needs her sister to perform this ritual to start this recurrence. She can't do it by herself. Well, later on in the fl- in one of the flashbacks that happens later in the towards the end of the volume, I believe actually, her, the sister tell was talking to her grandson. And she's basically like, yeah, like, Anarchy, like, my sister, she's, like, not creative. Which goes back into the thing I was saying about where she's essentially, like, the record label. And it's like, she can only really build off of what other people are building off of, which makes her easy to trick. So she does need her sister because her sister's, like, the actual 
creative force. Well, I think also, I think the pair of them are like, uh, they're kind of like, they're symbiotic. They're like dual. It's like the duality. There's like, you know, good and evil and, you know, creative and not creative and like time and, and, you know. Yeah. Finality. I don't know what the opposite of time would be, but less time. But there, for some reason, there has to be the pair of them in the core of this. But I mean, you could kind of spend like, you could go down a rabbit hole because you could look at the four heads and see like which ones, like which, you know, abilities they balance out because you have like Lucifer and Inanna and you have Tara. Mm -hmm. So it could be like there's, there's always has to be this sort of double balance for the recurrence to work. Yeah. So let's get into what happens uh you know like in the present day to the 20 the 2015 part of the story so cassandra is Erder and she's in the cage yeah with laura and john john and they realize that john is just basically a head yeah because they go to rescue him and they end up detaching his head and realizing that he has a robot body and then they realize that they're in the cage, that the cage can neutralize their godlike powers. Yeah. And so then uh, the two Norns, now turned back into two interns, show up uh, and get them out of the cage. Right. But meanwhile, Woden is like starting to put together what Minerva's deal is. Because he's watching the like recorded footage from the fight with Sackmat. And there's, like, a funny, like, uh, part where he has to watch the footage from Ball's necklace and it acknowledges the fact that putting a camera on a necklace is a really bad idea because it looks really, like, all the footage is out of focus and it keeps swinging back and forth. But he sees, like, a, a little bit of her killing Sethmet and cross-references it with the death of Lucifer. And I don't know if it's at this point. No, it's later on. But we do find out that there are, like, limits to what she let him see. Right. Right. She's also able to control the cameras or whatever. But then we that's when we clearly learn that the heads aren't exploded. They're just teleported. And yeah. they end up in this cave area, which has four little niches in it, and three of them are filled. And I guess we that's when you realize that Minerva was trying to get Sackman's head. And then she ends up chopping her off at the mouth, and the head's not useful. Yeah. Well, because the other, because Anarchy has been Anarchy for 80 years uh, or longer, and Minerva has not. So it's just like, yeah, of course, like, you're not going to be as accurate as the person who's had practice killing gods for quite a while. But also Minerva's kind of, like, immature and very impulse-driven, which is very clearly... Yeah, so I think that's an interesting thing where it's like... The Anarchy we see in the flashback is a lot more like Minerva than she is like the old woman Anarchy that we saw in the beginning of the series. With this idea that, like, she does sort of, like, mature, but she only ever matures to a certain point and then is reset back to this, like, violent, impulsive, juvenile self. Just over and over again forever. Right. Uh, which is interesting. Maybe says something about culture. I don't know. Like, but that's like basically the end of the issue. Like that flashback is pretty long, so the the issue basically just ends with 
Woden putting together, like starting to put together the Minerva and Anarchy are the same person or they're connected or something. And then we get to the next issue, which starts with another flashback to, but this time to the end of the recurrence in the 20s, which we saw a little bit of this scene. It's it's the scene with them sitting at the table with the skulls that ends in the explosion. We saw a little bit of this at the very beginning of the series. I think also it should be noted that... Okay, never mind. It's not That doesn't happen in this point. What? I was going to say that Lara is free of the cage, but um, Cassandra is still in it. But that doesn't happen until the next... Well, Cassandra gets put back in the cage. Right. They're both freed. Oh, but also I think important to note with the cage sequence is we're back in Laura's perspective for the first time in a while. And I think, and I'd have to go back and double check, but I think her dialogue, her uh, caption boxes are different. Did her caption boxes change when she became Persephone? I think so. Because they're definitely the same now, back to sort of the same ones as the beginning of the series. I think at some point all of the gods had... Unique caption boxes? Unique caption boxes. Uh, but we're back in her perspective, and she's really starting to... Like, we're really starting to see her uh, pass from this, like, general... The, that sort of general destructive nihilistic apathy that she had before into, like, a more specific and genuine um, disillusionment with the idea of being a god. And, like, she specifically asks Erder to call her Laura again. Right. Like, so it's, like, clear that, like, she's starting to come... To reclaim, like, her old identity. Which becomes very important later on in this volume. But yeah, then we get the flashback to the... To the 20s. And it's that same scene. But they're basically, like... I guess this is supposed to be our glimpse at what the end of a normal recurrence is supposed to look like. Which is basically all the remaining gods get together and have a suicide pact where they explode each other. Uh, at the behest of Anarchy. And then... Susano... No, he doesn't... He thinks that Minerva has chickened out. This version of Minerva, who is clearly supposed to be like an evil Shirley Temple with like a domino mask and corpse makeup. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's, I think, very much supposed to be like the ball of this recurrence. Right. Uh, he, looks like, he looks like Buster Keaton, but like an Asian Buster Keaton. Uh, and he gets ready to like kill her and then she kills him. Uh, and then. The like she walks out of the flames covered in blood like she's fucking Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII and goes up to the old Anarchy and says, uh, who says, once again we return and then Minerva says, not quite, I got the last head, let's end this fiasco, implying that she's about to kill her older self. Right. And then she puts his head on the pillar with and finishes the ritual with the four heads. Yeah. I don't know who these are supposed to be. There's, like, a woman with a flower crown. There's a guy with a eye patch. Yeah, and then... Oh, we actually do see her explode her her own head. Yeah, so this is what I was talking about with the, like, false immortality of, like, the computer file copying thing. Because she's, like... uh, They they start to have, like, an argument where Anarchy basically realizes, like, hey, I'm gonna die. Like, I don't want to do this. I did this whole thing specifically so I couldn't die. And she's like, well, I'm you. And she's like, yeah, but I'm me. Like, that's not the same thing. And then she just explodes her head. Yeah, and then she clicks all the heads to be skulls. They catch on fire, and then she shows them at the altar, and it's just her by herself. Well, she gets imbued with this, like, purple fire out of them, and then she gets, like, purple skulls in her eyes, which are similar to Persephone. Exactly. 
Which this is what part kind of confused me, where I thought maybe the sister and Anaki were sharing the ritual, and sometimes the sister would be Anaki, and sometimes Anaki would be herself. Well, I think she has. There was presumably a Persephone in this recurrence that she killed, so I think she takes some of her sister's power every time, and that's part of how she keeps extending her life or whatever. I think that's what's supposed to be going on there. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and so then Woden so threatens a child with a gun. Right. Because he's Woden. Because <laughs> yeah. no, that was the question I had. I was like, are they swapping sp- places during like, alternating recurrences? But it's not really clear. I don't think they are. We'll get to it. Because there's a crazy sequence that we're going to arrive at while we're, we're going through these issues. I don't think they're swapping places. But I do think she takes some of her power when she kills them. I think she takes some of the power of all the gods. Even though she's also the one making them. So I think what happens is Woden in his, he's smart, but he's not quick on the uptakes. He's starting now to put it together, even though he was manipulated by Anaki for most of his Woden career. He finally realizes that Minerva has a connection to Anaki. Now, does he hear her say, I am Anaki, or she just says that to the heads he specifically doesn't hear that because he doesn't get any recordings of the inside of the like cave or oh, whatever right he's looking there. for the cave yeah he's never been able to see any of any of that so he has no idea where the heads are or anything but he shows up and is basically like reveals that he knows that she's connected to Anaki and shows her the footage um i think he shows her the footage no he shows her like she oh, he shows, he shows her the footage of, of laura and cassandra like getting out and they've got mirror mirror and they're like figuring it out, and he basically like threatens threatens her into working with him, but then she just, just is doing it willingly because she knows that he's easy to manipulate. Yeah, because I think what the part of her charm is that she's, especially in the beginning where they show her being protected by the other gods, is that they feel like that she's young and innocent, and kind of doesn't understand this whole recurrence thing, but which shows that they sort of misunder like mis undervalued her. You know, they didn't really understand. Yeah. Uh, And then she starts manipulating... She immediately gets ready to manipulate them. She's texting with Cassandra and Laura. And she's like, oh my god, I don't know what's happening. And she's like playing, uh, you know, dumb. And she... playing all the sides at once. She's like, hey, Laura, you know, Ball had like a secret... There's like a secret room or something. Maybe you should go check that out. I, I don't know what's in there, but like maybe you should check it out. And she does... And then she tells Ball, then she goes and tells Ball that Laura is doing that, setting them both on a collision course, which uh, intersects at this grim, like, underground room with a big bowl full of ashes and child bones. But this is the big question that was going on through the other... How am I so smart and how did I call it immediately? Yeah, I know, I know. It's like, that's a lot to process. I know. How cool I am. Well, the question always was, was which which ball was he? Yeah, now it's confirmed. He's not the ball he presents himself as. Also, it's pretty clear that Ball is one of the more powerful gods. Because, first of all, the, the child sacrifices that he does, he thinks he's doing them to stave off the darkness. But it may turn out that the rituals were meant to sort of neutralize some of his power because he believes that the necklace that Woden made for him keeps his powers under control. Here's what I think is going on. 
Okay, so just so people are clear, in case they don't understand, we do get convenient little flashback panels in the issue to explain this. Way back, when they were trying to figure out who... I think it was when they were trying to figure out who killed the judge, right? Right. Laura and Cassandra, at the time, neither of them gods, have this conversation where Cassandra does a, a nerdy info dump where they go through all of the gods that it could be. Uh, who who would have done it? Who could have framed Lucifer for that thing? Uh, that's one of the moments where I, one of the it me moments uh, with with Cassandra, and one of the things she says is like it could be Ball if he's Ball Haman Haman instead of Ball Hadad, who is the one that he had been presenting himself as. Well, Hadad is lightning god, while Haman is a fire god, but also one of the few gods that we have like definitive archaeological proof that their cult engaged in child sacrifice. Which, like, understandably, you wouldn't want to be that. I had developed a theory, once we learned about Woden making the objects for the other gods and that those objects could modify the gods' powers, I developed the theory that he is actually Baal Haman and that the lightning bolt necklace was turning his powers into lightning. Which he confirms in this. He says it filters his powers into something more socially acceptable. And he talks a little bit about having to like hold back and not being able to show everything, but what they had. So I guess the idea is that the lightning powers, because they're not his actual powers, are less potent than the fire. And then as he reveals that, this Anakin basically told him that doing these child sacrifices would stave off the darkness. And this was something that she told him while he was mourning his father, who had been killed by the darkness... Probably actually killed by Anarchy uh, right after he had become a god. I think that the rituals don't do anything except make him guilty and subservient and easy to manipulate. Because we had had this conversation, or not this conversation, there's this idea that was brought up in the previous volume, specifically right after Persephone executes Anarchy, where they were like, you know, everything she said to us has this big, unless she was lying on it. Ball was was the one who was most committed to operating under the assumption that the things that Anarchy said were true, were true. And I think that's because if she is 100% a liar, that means he killed kids for nothing. So by having this like big secret hanging over him, he has to accept her word as gospel. Otherwise, he's been manipulated into doing something unspeakable. And so I think it's a way to keep a very powerful god under wraps and subservient to her. Especially even in the uh, the event that she dies, he'll still keep doing the things she wants him to do. So do you think that the darkness actually exists? Or do you think that was created by Anaki and then later by Minerva? I think the darkness exists and it was created by her sister. Which is why Persephone's powers don't work on it. Because it's part, it's like an extension of her powers. It's like she's trying to put out a fire with fire. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think what's the takeaway mostly is that Baal is very powerful. Even yeah. even if he is Baal Haman, he has more power than some of the other gods. And more power than he, we had even thought he had. Like he was he was like the 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 heavy hitter of the gods to begin with, and it turns out he's actually mu- which like explains sort of like what was up with Sackman, right? Where they, like, couldn't beat Sackman. It's like, why is she so powerful? But it's like, 
Ball is probably as powerful, if not more powerful than her, but he's being held back by the lightning necklace. Yeah, and I think the part of like the human part, the Valentine part of Ball is kind of guilt-ridden by these sacrifices. For sure. Because he goes on to tell Persephone that they don't suffer and that he drugs them and that he's only... It's it's sort of a... Yeah, it's sort of like... It's like a bad decision that has to be done because their deaths save a lot more people. So he's sort of... He's backpedaling it in his mind and justifying it in his mind. But I think this is sort of... This is where we start to see where Minerva is coming into her own as the same level of manipulator that Anaki is. Because once she tells Persephone about that room, Ball's secret is revealed. Yeah, I and mean, I think she's also trying to get them to kill each other, right? Like, which doesn't work. Ball Persephone leaves and Ball just, like, explodes. He goes full Dark Phoenix and just explodes Valhalla. Well, yeah, he burns it down. If... Minerva is connected to Anaki and she seems to have this sort of same ancestral history and remembrance of what Anaki had. Mm. They have to kill Persephone. Yeah. Because Persephone is the sister's god. And to take the sister's power, they can't have Persephone at the recurrent. She also just has to kill all of them. They lay that out on the rules. They all have to die before it's over. So whether, like, she still has to to get her at some point. Uh, What was I going to say? Do you... Oh, I think that part of the other thing with the child sacrifice, right, is it it makes him guilty, which I think then makes him more likely to take on the role that he did take on as, like, Minerva's protector. He gets to play bodyguard to, to her to try and assuage his guilt, which keeps her safe yep. from the darkness and stuff like that. It's, yeah, and I think it's pretty clear what happens because in the next episode, the next issue, I keep saying issue as episode. That's and- fine. Issue, episode, chapter, it's all the fucking same thing. It opens, again, with this sort of flashback montage of all these different squares of of different recurrences and different instances of Anaki meeting Persephone, and sometimes Anaki kills Persephone, sometimes Persephone kills Anaki, sometimes they both live. Sometimes they, a lot of times they embrace, and there's a moment of grace and forgiveness, which, like, is all the more tragic because you know that those are just erased over and over again. They're meaningless. Like, oh, every so often, Anaki gets to assuage her guilt by forgiving her sister and hugging and saying, I missed you. And then they just go right back to, like, Tom and Jerry style, killing each other over and over again. And it, it's six panel grids. I think I... No, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it's six panels. And each one is labeled with the recurrence. And they're all over the different worlds, different... Uh, countries, mm-hmm. different time periods, and it's sort of it goes from BC to AD to current. I think times. it's it's every recurrence. We get to see at least one panel of every recurrence through this sequence. Uh, yeah, and it because it ends with the Great Britain 2014, which is when Lara became Persephone. Which means that Minerva, except for this latest one, I guess I actually don't know how it works. But Minerva rem- remembers, and from her perspective, performed every murder in that, those, like, what is it, like, nine pages of six panel yeah, grids? Yeah, Which, like, pretty fucked up. I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the Ball thing, though, because I, I know you, I liked Ball a lot, 
And it, it is like a crazy gut punch to be like, oh, like this dude who seems like the most like morally stalwart and upright character in the series has been killing kids off panel for the past two years. Well, I think that that's what happens after the recurrence montage. It goes to the backstory of Anaki and Ball discussing yeah. the darkness. And that's when she convinces him, which I think she does him dirty more than she does the other ones. Because he seems to care about yeah. people. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's why she has to do this to him. Because otherwise he would probably be the biggest danger to her. Because he he's the one that most wants to just be like a superhero. Right. I mean, he's not in it for fame. He's in it for helping. And I think she takes advantage of his base nature. And then manipulates him. But then also manipulates him into doing something that's so horrendous that it sort of fractures him in some way yeah yeah exactly and i think this is also like to go back into like a metaphorical space i mean i think this is drawing like a parallel to stuff that happens in like the music industry and politics of these like dark secrets these dudes come up with to like bind themselves together it's like you you can't say anything now because now you're part of the club and you did a bad thing and we all know you did a bad thing like you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like everyone has evidence of bad behavior on every single person. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, Ball is kind of like, he's the dad figure. He's He, at some point, is even the surrogate father for Minerva. But, I mean, he cares about his family. He cares about the people that live in London. And he wants to make them safe. So he makes this ultimate decision, which he thinks is in a way helping... And may or may not be helping. I don't think it's helping at all. And I think at the end of the day, no matter what, how good he thinks, how much good he thinks he was doing, like, I think the book's perspective, my perspective, and I think also Laura's perspective as she's getting this confession, which, like, the title of this issue is The Confession of Valentine Gamble, is that this is ultimately unjustifiable, what he did. And I think this also is a turning point of how you're supposed to see Laura. Because if Laura truly was Persephone, this would not shock her. Yeah. And it kind of does. I mean, she's kind of shocked at, like, caring for someone who does this and then also shocked by the act of what he's doing. And if she was Persephone, she'd be like, that's cool. Because for six volumes, she was just like, I don't care. We'll do whatever you want. I choose chaos. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, I think it's become clear that, like, that persona was, like, that, that was her, like, in mourning. And now she's been shocked out of this. It by all this other shit happening. But I do love that the one... It's only half panel, but, like, Ball goes full fury. And he says, get out of here. And he's, like, engulfed in flames. Yeah. And then, if like, in the if last page of the issue is, like, Laura emerging out of the ground on, like, a hill overlooking Valhalla. And it's just burning. And she gets a uh, alert from an unknown number... That says, is anyone alive? The Norns were just on TV saying weird shit, and then they were locked up. Is any of it true? What the fuck? Which we learned, like, pretty quickly in the next issue. That's our boy, Baphomet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the the next issue, we, we get our more flashbacks. These are, like, our taste of, like, what happens when it goes wrong. Like, the, the, the when the recurrence ritual goes wrong. Because we get a glimpse of the this... Egypt, uh, what is it, 3127 BC, 
She's only got the three heads. She start like anarchy. She starts doing the ritual. She's like, oh, this, uh, this has to work. And then the fire just like burns her up painfully. And we get another, we get a, what is this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten pages of nine panel grids of darkness, each one representing a year. So that's 90 years of darkness. So she fucks up the ritual. She spends the next 90 years before the recurrence in, like, the void, consumed by the darkness. Well, that's when I start to realize that, like you said, the darkness may not be this force that's, you know, focused on destroying humanity, but is a darkness that affects her that she's terrified of. Yeah, well, then in Crete 3037 BC, she emerges from the ground and is, like, wide-eyed in terror and says never again and is, like, clawing gashes into her own face yeah pretty brutal a lot of brutal stuff in this this volume this is like the most like intense and bleak volume we've gotten so far uh it reminds me a lot of like this volume in particular reminds me a lot of the kindly ones like the volume not the characters but also the characters because there is a mother maiden crone thing that's coming up it does, a lot of that does remind me. Yeah, because it's the sort of eternal female struggle mm-hmm. that they're dealing with. But it's also just like this this dark mythic like uh tragedy story where like all the everyone is confused and angry and there's all these manipulators trying to manipulate each other like in the same way that the kindly ones you had like um Loki and Robin Goodfellow and Lucifer, like, all hanging around at the same time. And in this you have, like, Minerva and Woden. And the, and then, like, they're all... Everybody's trying to manipulate each other. And all this dark shit is happening and fire and children are in danger. Yeah, but I think to the public they're still sort of idolizing these gods. Because this issue opens with... This is a bummer. Two men talking about, like, what's going on. And talking about the... Um, event that happens with Cassandra and Dionysus. Yeah, this is very much like the, um, it's like the Terra sequence where you get a glimpse of like, oh, they like idolize and obsess over these gods, but in the same way that we are with celebrity, like, people are very cruel and callous about them as people. Like, they're like, yeah, whatever. Like, oh, you know, can you be surprised that that Dionysus guy died? Wasn't he on drugs? And it's a lot like when people talk, people are very flippant about like Kanye West's mental illness and stuff like that. And it's like, on one hand, like, these people are rich and powerful, but on the other hand, it's like, they are people, and they're under weird pressures that we don't understand. And so it's like, I guess Cassandra basically had a press conference where she tried to reveal all the information she had learned in the cage, and then, like... People thought they were hard, and the Nords were crazy. Yeah, and then she got locked up again, back in the cage by Woden. (laughs) And then these guys are, like, going... Or we, I guess they're just get, catching a train. Yeah. <laughs> but, her, but then we cut into the underground with Baphomet and Laura talking. And so Baphomet reveals in this that, like, he got a hold of, like, an emergency pager thing. Like, that's how he sent out that message. And so it was to everyone in the Pantheon. Which means in addition to Laura seeing it, like, Minerva and Woden presumably also saw it. Uh, and so they're, like, they're having a conversation. He's He's really bummed out about his friend dying. I guess we give it confirmed that, like, Dionysus is just dead. I guess he's not in a coma anymore. Yeah, I think that's what happens. I guess it's not really... It's shown off-screen or off-book, but, like, at some point he just ends up dying. Yeah. 
we're getting more and more of Laura's inner inner monologue at this point. Like she's coming more and more back into herself. Uh, she's reminded of why she likes Baphomet when he makes a joke. Uh, and then we cut to, I mean, she's like just filling him in basically is what this scene is, right? Yeah. And I think, and then it cuts to Annika and she's, um, Minerva. Oh wait, the other important thing is this, Laura contemplates, but does not, contemplates revealing ball secret to Baphomet, but doesn't. Right. That would fuck him up. Because he's supposed to have like this like grudging respect thing with ball. Right. And then it's like, oh, that guy's like a child killer. But also, Baphomet is supposed to be, well, Baphomet, and he's supposed to be, like, a dark underworld god, but we know that he's really not. Yeah, yeah. At this point. He's, I mean, he's very Wolverine, where he's supposed to be like, I'm, I'm angry and violent, but I actually, I just want to be friends with everybody. Uh, yeah, and then we get Minerva, and she's talking to the heads, Lucifer's mouthing off to her. She gets the message from Baphomet. Uh, and starts to set a plan in motion, which requires her to sew all the, their mouths shut. Right. Which we saw in one of the early recurrences, she does the same thing. So, Well, I think it's clear at this point, and later on it's explicitly shown, Woden wants for some reason to find out where these heads are. And he thinks yeah. that Cassandra can help him. Well, he's... Part of his motivation... Like, the only thing that really makes him at all kind of sympathetic is that he doesn't want her to take his son's head. Right. Which I think is why he wants to get a hold of the heads. Because he has a vested interest in stopping this ritual so that his son's head doesn't get Well, who turned him into a head? Anaki? Jesse? I I think it's implied that it has to be Anaki. Yeah, or he just became a head when he became a god because Mirmir is a head? (laughs) I don't know. But then the other thing is, like, Woden chopped... His well, in the myth, right? Woden chopped his head off. Which, like, did he, he become can... a god and then his own dad took his head off? Well, in the in the mythology, Woden cat or, or yeah, he carries the head around and it, it's like an oracle, right? But I was going to call him by his name. He's not called Woden. Odin. 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 Odin, Odin, Odin carries Mirmir's head around because he's a sort of. He can see the future, or he can reveal people's secrets. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes Odin such an interesting god is that even though he's supposed to be like the, like the the All Father, God King, main dude of that pantheon, almost all his power is external, which I think is why he's the way he is in this, because it's like he gets his knowledge from being under the World Tree and from sacrificing his eye, and then he also gets all of his knowledge from this head that he carries around. Like, he is, is in a lot of ways, like, a self-made god, despite being the, like, lead king god of the Norse pantheon, essentially. But but then we come back into the underground, and the Morrigan shows up. Well, this is kind of inevitable. You know there has to be some type of confrontation between Persephone and the Morrigan, and there has to be some kind of resolution between the Morrigan and Baphomet. Yeah, we get this crazy fight where they they crash out of the. Yeah, she. Yeah, they crash it out and they immediately start attacking Persephone. Now, at this time, does Baphomet know that the Morgan ignored? Yeah. The email, the message to help. Yeah, yeah, he does know that now. Uh, yeah, and they they have their big fight. It's interspersed with like cuts back to. Uh, their past when they were humans. Uh, I mean, Baphomet intervenes 
and stops her from attacking Persephone. Uh, and it, it looks like he's, like, knocked her out, and he has this, like, moment of, like, regret and sympathy, and then she just has her ravens tear him apart. Yeah, and I kind of, like, this is what kind of confused me about the Morrigan and Baphomet. Anaki creates the creates Baphomet for the Morrigan mm-hmm. because she asks her to. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of like Baphomet is really outside of the planned recurrence. I think, I guess, but I think it's also just like there are, is room for that. Like and she then could, she creates him as Nurgle. But you know what I think is really interesting and I, I think this is a really great, so it's a sad moment, but I think the way that it's like, the way that it's designed, there's like a strip of the fight and then between each strip there's a, like a black and white smaller strip that sort of shows them and their human relationship mm-hmm. and as they keep fighting it shows their sort of their their human breakup as well as their like godlike breakup yeah and then in the sequence like the um the page where the ravens are tearing them apart is like structured the same way with the same like they're like these like flying birds as like the panel border but there's no flashback sequence in that it's just all the the bloody brutal present now and she like laughs and then gets looks real serious in the last two panels. Yeah, and then it shows like it shows you the black page with the icons and it just says Baphomet and it's like crossed out. Yeah, and his icon is gone. Replaced yeah. with a skull like all the other ones that are dead. Uh also Perse- uh not Persephone. Uh Erder's icon has like bars over it. That's been since like she got recaptured. Okay. Yeah. To so. show that she's like cut off. So then I guess Persephone stays out of the fight, and then it cuts to the end of the fight. And first of all, the underground tube station is completely destroyed. Yeah. And Persephone comes out of a hole in the wall, and she sees the Morrigan crying over Baphomet's bloodied body. Yeah, and then she tells her, like, a hey, step away, you killed him, Like, and she's, like, telling her off. And then she turns back into Gentle Annie for a final time and does the he's not dead, he's sleeping thing like she did before with the police officer in the underground. And she brings him back, apparently at the expense of her own life. Uh, and she kills over dead. He calls her by her real human name one last time. Uh, and then we move into the next issue. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, it's sad. It's sad that their relationship ends in destruction, but it's kind of inevitable and it's sad that the Morgan sort of just sort of is very has a very unhappy life and yeah. very unhappy God experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's another example of this like getting to be a God does not fix the problems. Like becoming famous or rich or whatever doesn't fix your like internal personal problems. More often than not, it just makes them worse. Uh, which I think is the case here. Like, the fact that they have god powers means that they give a much more destructive and violent end to their relationship than they probably would have if they were just, like, normal human beings. And I think the sort of the Morgan also is a symbolic sort of um, portrayal of what's going on with Anaki and her sister and this sort of internal fractured Yeah, well, because she's a triple. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. Uh, Wait, I think also important in this issue, did we get to it? Yeah, when they're talking, when Persephone and Baphomet are talking in the underground before the Morrigan shows up, we miss the most important thing. 
Dun, dun, dun. She's pregnant. Right. She also says that to Ball. It's And that's she, one of the reasons why Ball lets her leave. Yeah, which I guess is like, that's the monkey wrench in Minerva's plan. She thinks like maybe they'll kill each other. I assume she was trying to get them to kill each other, but she doesn't... Excuse me. As far as I know, she doesn't know that Minerva's... I mean, Persephone's pregnant. And I think, too, Baphomet is not sure if he's the father... But then he also reveals that he would be a terrible father if he was the father. Probably wouldn't be. He's got the he's got the dad jokes down already. Yeah, <laughs> so he's got that going for him. Uh, but I guess even Persephone doesn't know who the father is because I think it's been set up very clearly that she's. Well, we got three options: Ball, Baphomet, or Sackman. <laughs> Well, and then there's also that guy that has the really gnarly cocaine that she takes home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Lucifer... Well, no, wait, that's a... Does she sleep with the... No, she doesn't sleep with the Lucifer impersonator, right? She gets... She she goes back on her because she doesn't want to be Woden. Yeah. Uh, but anyway... Um, the next issue, we get another flashback, this time the 1944. And this is the part where... This is... We get to see the sequence where... Um, Anarchy has the conversation with Robert Graves that leads to him writing The White Goddess. Yeah, and this is kind of interesting because it's something that's mentioned earlier and then you get to learn more about it. But it's also pivotal to the story because it kind of sets the precedent about, like like you said, Anaki creating this mythology. Mm. And here she is in the modern times creating a new kind of mythology, which is this sort of book that Robert Graves ends up writing about the white goddess. Yeah, well, she also reveals, she reveals that, um, she says, the first gods were my sisters, maiden, mother, crone, an effective sleight of hand, easy to fall for. I thought one could use that. So, like, that's her getting more into that thing of, like, she's always just kind of, like, building off of the stuff that her sister does. Nothing, like, really originates with her. I think that's why this kind of put me off a little bit about how it doesn't, if Anaki is supposed to fill two parts of the mother, maiden, crone, the sort of trio of goddesses. But in my mind, it would make sense if Persephone was the third, was the maiden. Well, I think that that's part of the game, right? Is like... So we've talked before, right? Like, the Mother, Maiden, Crone thing is like, it's three in one, because it's like different guises that a, a woman can share. Like, we talked extensively about this in Sandman, where there were characters... There were recurring, like, three groups of characters, where each one was one of them. But also lots of characters... Like, Rose is the big one, right? Mm -hmm. Embodied those aspects at different points in the story. Uh, and so I think part of the idea is, like, Anarchy is the mother and the crone. She's making the gods. That's the I think that's the mother part. And she's the old woman. But then it's also, like, she's the young Minerva and she's the old Anarchy. But part of the game is that Persephone has to pass from maiden to mother to like cut through and fuck up anarchy's perfect cycle by usurping one of her roles to end the game i think does that make sense yeah that does because it's it's sort of outlined later on in the story that it's very clear that well, let's not talk about that yet. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. That's heavy. Uh, but there's also this weird part that I don't understand in the flashback where she's talking to Robert Graves, where she says, uh, I offer them godhood, choose the right verse, the divine poetry to recite. Of course, they can't resist it. It's our secret language like dot, 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 trees. 
We're like trees. I told the druid something like that. Twelve trees and the thirteenth tree, the elder tree, which is death. What does that mean? What is she talking about? They're like trees? We're like trees. But the secret is the secret language also like trees? Like I guess it's like They're trees in that they get chopped down. She chops her heads off. Yeah. So I, then that means there's there's always twelve gods plus her. Yes. Which and the well, twelve gods plus Persephone who is the thirteenth tree, the elder tree, which is death, right? Well, when Persephone shows up, that's the end of the recurrence. That's toward that's the down end of when the recurrence is being finished. Mm-hmm. Also, another great look for uh, Anarchy in the scene. Uh, she's got this, like, uh, you know, professional, like, you know, 1940s lady outfit with, like, a big elaborate hairdo. Yeah, I like that. Uh, it's also, like, this is not her as a child. It's also not her as, like, an old lady. Like, this is, like, just it's- adult Anarchy, which is not a per- one that we get to see a lot of. Yeah, and it's very British. Yeah, this yeah. This sort of professional woman from, you know, during the war. Uh, and then we get a little bit of him giving the talk about the white god, uh, about the white goddess. And she, he's, she's like, yeah, he just sort of like took whatever he, he wanted to hear and filled in the rest and wasn't really paying attention to me. It's kind of like Robert Graves is like the Woden. I think that's the idea, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he, there's a, they're sort of drawing a parallel between him and, and Blake as like playing a similar-ish role. As like a scholar that she she manipulates, and then this is the part I don't understand. It says Great Britain, twenty thirteen, and it's a woman who shows up in the in the purple cape in the middle of a field, and she walks into a, at someone's house and says, "I'm in Colchester. Come and get me." This throws a huge fucking monkey wrench again. Monkey, I'm apparently on my way into saying monkey wrench this episode. Into my perception of how the cycle works. Because I think this is supposed to be Anarchy. It looks like Anarchy when she emerges from the darkness after she fucks up in Egypt. So implied that maybe she messed up, like, in the last... I guess, but... Between 1920 and 2014? I I guess. I have no idea what's going on here. Because this is 2013. She shows up and she's, like, goes to this guy's house. And it's like, I'm in Colchester. Time to introduce the greedy couple to their winning ticket. Uh, and she's says she likes using the telephone, and then I it cuts w- to 2014, and we get Anarchy and Minerva. I wonder if that's Minerva, and she creates herself. Maybe I have no idea because the, the greedy couple are the fake parents. Yes, so it has to be Minerva, and she has so instead of Anarchy going and creating the other gods, like she visits them and turns them into the gods, maybe Minerva can self-generate. But so and that's is that what happens? She what? self-generates in the field and she comes home. Does the and then I she calls the people and says, "I'm here. Come and get me." So, so she does she reappear as a young woman and then become a child, or does she reappear as a young woman and then give birth to herself? So there's a third version of Anarchy that's like fleeting in existence no between the old one and the young one. Is the old one still around? I assume, right? Like the one that talked to Robert Graves is this. The one from the beginning of this volume, I thought. And so presumably she's also active. Did she go and call herself? I have no idea what's happening with this sequence. It's only like a page and it immediately cuts to a year later and it's the old woman version that we know and the child Minerva that we know. 
when I first read that, I thought that that was Minerva calling, or Anaki calling Minerva. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's very unclear. I mean, like, I assume we'll get an explanation of some kind in the next two volumes, but I have genuinely no read on that page. I don't know what that means. So then this is also, so when we meet Anaki and Minerva, they're having this sort of... They're coming up with the machine plan. Right. And they're having this sort of, like, heated conversation, and she wants more answers, and Anaki says, there's no more time. I wrote it in a letter. Which is what we learned in one of the previous volumes that Anaki writes a letter. And then the question was, who is she writing this letter to? Yeah, I guess like the old version and the young one don't share memories while they're still both alive. Yes, that's right. So then one of them has to... To leave a directions for the other one. And I think that's kind of... That's what's kind of... The previous thing was confusing because when you get to this, then you realize that Minerva and Anaki are two separate people... Until Anaki is dead, and then Minerva either gets access to the ancestral memories, or somehow they're transferred to her. Yeah. But but then we cut to current times, to an attack ad against Cassandra? Yeah, for some reason they're kind of making it seem like a lot of the problems that are happening are because of Cassandra and her meddling... She's like the Velma of the group where she's doing too much meddling and getting it. Yeah. So Woden has recruited Beth and her cronies and they have made a smear campaign against Cassandra to justify his imprisoning of her and to blame her for all the shit that's been going wrong. And so now he's got her locked up with the other Norns and he's working directly with Beth and the film crew. And then he's also got Minerva working for him and it's presented like he's blackmailing and threatening her. But we actually know what's up. But that keeps Cassandra still sympathetic to her while she works openly with Odin. Which, pretty good manipulation there. And I think, and Woden, this is when it's clear what Woden wants from Cassandra and the Norns. He wants them to divine where the cave is, where the heads are. Yeah, and I think this also drives, she's surprised that she can do that. And I think this drives home how much of the, like, inter-god fighting and celebrity stuff exists so that Anarchy can distract them while she does her job. Because, like, Cassandra's been so worked up in all of this other stuff that she hasn't come to terms with exactly how powerful she is. Which has been useful, but now she needs to know how powerful she is so that she can find the heads for Woden. And then he brings Minerva to the cave, and Tara, Anana, and Lucifer all have their mouths sewn shut. And have, like, symbols drawn on them. Yeah, so that kind of sets that, like... They, it's pretty clear that they're still missing the fourth head. Yeah. Because Sackman head is not going to work. No, because it's just the top of the head. It's not going to work. Uh, and then it cuts to Persephone and Baphomet. And he takes the Morgan's body to this giant cathedral that they were building in the underground... As sort of a tomb to place her body in. And then as he places the body in there, it splits into the three different Morrigans. And him and Persephone talk about things that are going on. And he decides to leave with her. 
Well, no, he, she leaves. He decides to stay there. He says, I'm going to finish this temple to the threefold corpse of my dead girlfriend who killed me and brought me back. I say that sentence and I don't fucking blink. That's my life. That's my choice. Essentially being like, look, you don't. This is what I am and you got to figure out what you are. And right. Like, and But then he clearly says that he's Nurgle and he does not want to be called Baphomet anymore. Yeah. So he's going back to embrace the god that he was originally created as. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of sad. Yeah, and, and then, then you what? think that kind of like that's the end of Baphomet. And I think he'll come back by the end. I was gonna say he'll have to because he has a sort of hero complex, even though he. I think he's gonna. Him and Ball are gonna die fighting each other. That's my prediction. And then, I guess Ball creates a rainstorm to put out the fire that he did when he burned Valhalla down, and Minerva shows up and she finds out that Persephone is pregnant and she gets very shocked yeah because it's like row, row, put also, the wrinkle in her plans i don't know what i can't remember specifically what is being referenced here but there's a definitely a visual reference with ball is seated in like lotus position in complete shadow when minerva shows up and i know that that is a visual reference to another comic i think it's maybe watchmen i think it's a dr manhattan panel um it also reminds me of this comic, which we will definitely read for the podcast at some point, called A God Somewhere. But, uh, but he yeah. is fucking, he is in a dark place. And he also puts back on the necklace. Well, I think he has to to do the rain, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's lightning god shit. That's not fire god stuff. So then Persephone decides, she walks out of the underworld, she throws away her <laughs> The most symbolic phone. SIM card change that I've ever seen in fiction. And then she picks <laughs> it. Goes back to her destroyed house and picks up her old phone. Yeah. So she kind of like... I don't know if it's clear at this point, but she kind of just sort of walks away from her Persephone. She's done with that. She's done mourning. And she's done with the darkness. And she just sort of leaves her old entity in, symbolized by her... What do they, have, they have a name for it. Oh, uh, it's like Illusinia or something? Yes. Like the the god phone? The god phone. Yeah, she, but she goes back to her old cell phone that she was using heavily throughout the beginning of the series. I think it's, I think it works like totally well. Like it's a good like visual metaphor of the reclamation of identity. It ties back into the other stuff we were talking about like with these identities and connections with technology and stuff. But I think it's really funny that it's an important metaphorical SIM card change. Yeah. And then it cuts back to Woden, and he's threatening Cassandra to do to do something. She won't do it, and then he thre- she threat he threatens the Nords, and she agrees to do it. Yeah, well, at first she's and it's like she- that you can't threaten me because you can't kill me because you need me, and then he's like, yeah, but I don't need them. <laughs> but what he's asking her is to find Persephone because Minerva needs to find her now. And she's freaking out so hard that she's like overplaying her hand. Yeah, because this is a wrinkle that she did not expect to happen, which would be Persephone possibly having a child. Yeah, because that is the end of that issue, and then I believe in the next issue is where we get the flashback that reveals the importance. But I think it's also important at this point because in the beginning of the volume, the Nords are talking, and they kind of come to this realization that maybe Cassandra doesn't care about them, and that they're just there because... They, they need the Nords to complete Urders. Yeah. And then at the end, when they're threatened directly, she chooses to do something to save them. And then they realize that she cares for them. Because I think the whole concept, especially when you go back to the part where 
Beth is having this like smear campaign on social media is that Cassandra is very uncaring. Well, yeah, I think that's like her and Baphomet are similar in that they're characters that are presented as being like uh, jerks who are actually just like very wounded, nice people. Like it's like she is a person who is like bad at making friends, I think, but wants to be a good friend. Like it goes back to her relationship with Laura and like she clearly cares about the Norns even though she's seems like cold to them and i think that it's like she jettisoned like i mean beth betrayed her and she jettisoned him but in beth's mind cassandra's still the bad guy yeah well it turns out that like beth and her interns wanted to be gods there's lots of people who have god envy i think what's interesting when we go after that conversation there's a conversation between cassandra and woden where she sort of goads him about acting very childish and he kind of says like anyone can act like a child have you ever read a novel and kind of acknowledges that he was playing this sort of jerk persona when he was playing Woden as this like lecherous yeah and then it also gets into like the weird like hubris and selfishness of this idea that he can do all this and then walk back at the end like I really like like just sort of like exposing like the gross contradictions inherent in this guy's character so then it cuts to a scene with Woden and Minerva and you go into Woden's laboratory and I think this is very interesting because this kind of explains why he wants to know where the heads are he has four small monoliths in the background of his lab and three of them have circles filled in and the fourth one does not this is I think those are his machines for replicating god powers right because he's building a gun and he talks about how he's trying to recreate the hive mind of Dionysus. Mm-hmm. And then you realize later on when he creates these... Well, so then he creates this gun and the gun is to catch Persephone and it's set to stun and Minerva changes it to lethal. Yeah. And then it cuts to the scene where we see Anaki and this is when she's wearing that... Um, headdress that's made from the skull with the giant horns yeah, on it. Yeah, I was looking at it on the cover. We get another one of those like classic covers that's like the extreme like Jonathan Demi style close-up. It's a like a helmet more than a mask. And what I think it is is it's like a um like an antelope skull mm-hmm. with the snout broken off. Right. So it's then the eye holes are made are like now huge because the lower part of them is not connected and they make like this like hood over her eyes. Within the like the big antlers, it's, it's a really cool design, and it's very sort of. She's got like pirate earrings. Yeah, it's very grim. Yeah, I mean, she looks like a she looks like a death god. Uh, also, I want to talk about Odin's machine. So we can see the symbols on it. He's got Lucifer, Amaterasu, and then the third one is covered by a piece of machinery in the first panel. And then I think on the second panel we get a look at it, and I can't tell whose symbol that is. It looks like a shield. I don't know who that's supposed to be. Well, Tara is the third one. So is it Tara? He has Tara, Amaterasu, and Lucifer's powers to replicate it. No, it's it's ta- it's Lucifer and Nana. No, no, I'm talking about Woden's oh, Woden. machines, Machine. which are like are clearly supposed to visually parallel the the creches with the severed heads in them. But I, he can replicate certain gods' powers, and then I think the symbols on the machines indicate which gods he can, whose powers he can replicate. 
And it's Lucifer's pentacle, Amaterasu's sun symbol, and then a third one that I can't tell. It's covered in the first panel where we see it, and then I think uncovered in the next two panels, and it looks like a shield with a line through it. And I can't tell whose powers that's supposed to be. That also, that sun might actually be uh, Anana's star powers. I can't actually tell. Well, what happens is after you go through the to the flashback with Anaki and her sister, it's revealed, this is why Minerva is so upset, that if Persephone reincarnated during a recurrence, gives birth to a child, then the cycle is broken. Yes. So that's why Minerva is so upset when she finds out that Persephone is expecting. Because that if she has that child, no matter what Minerva does, the cycle will be broken. That's why she sets the gun to stun because she wants them to find Persephone and thinking that they're going to stun her to kill her. So what happens is that Beth and the two interns are given these sort of god powers from Woden using those machines and the technology that creates the Valkyries to turn them into like superheroes. And they have, like, Valkyrie-inspired suits, but they have the powers of the gods that Woden has transferred to them. And they end up meeting Persephone slash Lara in a subway, and we see Lara, and she's kind of, she's, like, completely bland. She's just wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Her hair is completely shaved. She doesn't have any of her makeup on. And she's very docile, very sad. And they confront her. But I, I totally love this sort of, like, superhero Power Ranger suits that they're wearing. Yeah, they're dope. Uh, but they're also totally silly, which is good. Like, I think that's the intention there. Um, it's Terra. Terra is the last symbol. It's not a shield. It's the... Um, her symbol is, like, the tragedy and comedy mask faces, but it's one half of each making up a whole mask. Now, is the middle one Inanna? Because then it would be the three that are in the... I think it is Inanna. Okay. So he the the he the three that are in the thing are also ones whose powers he apparently has access to, I, in, unless I've misinterpreted what this machine does. No, and then you learn that he these suits that he creates are powered by that god power, and that's why Beth and her interns now have powers. And when they confront Persephone, and they realize that she has forsaken her Persephone powers to go back to her self as Lara, they're mad at her because they wanted God powers Mm -hmm. and she got God powers and she just forsake them. Yeah, she's Dave Chappelle and everyone is mad at her, but not for the reasons everyone's mad at Dave Chappelle now, which are entirely different reasons. Also, they look like they're playing laser tag and also the dude from the film crew does this like awful superhero taunt when he shows up. Mm-hmm. Or he's asked her, he says, I'm a big fan, want to collaborate with my fist? And then everybody else is like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? And then it's when they realize one of the, I don't know if it's the intern or Beth herself. Oh, it's not It's not Beth, it's the other one. I can't, yeah. I, I don't know if these two, the two blondes have names, but it's the one that's not Beth. They realize that this is really sad and, and also... I don't know if it's a trigger warning or it's just controversial. We should have done just... a trigger warning at the beginning of this because, like we said, this volume's got child death, it's got discussion of abortion, and it's got... Um, we didn't touch on it, but there is also a discussion of rape in regards to mind control. 
that happens between Woden and Minerva at one point. But I think what... I think the thing here is that Laura has made the decision for herself based on what she thinks is best for herself. Mm -hmm. And then she decides to terminate her pregnancy. Yeah. So Which Minerva doesn't know because that would solve Minerva's problem. So she still is looking to ter- to exterminate Persephone. Yeah, but she knows that she stopped being like she knows that she stopped being the god and is like celebrating that. And that like yeah, okay, hold on. So we'll we'll talk we'll talk about the So after the confrontation with the three superhero they're kind of like supposed to be the opposite version of the mm-hmm. gods or the opposite version of the Nords. They realize what has happened to Lara and the mindset that she's in and they just let her go. Yeah. Okay. So we yeah. have Cassandra is like really not Cassandra. Beth is really mad about this and she's basically like you get to live with being a, a normie and seeing how great we are and, and regretting your decision and like that's your punishment. And she wants she's like building up to do that the whole time Minerva is like, shoot her, shoot her, shoot her, expecting it to kill her. And then she realizes that she's not the destroyer anymore. And she's like, okay, well, I guess I won. And she starts celebrating. The gun is still set to kill. Is that a Chekhov's gun? And is somebody going to get accidentally killed by that gun by the end of the story? I guess we won't know. Uh, in my notes here, I very clearly write down that Mir Mirror built those boxes. Yeah. And that... Well, they're the same Gordon color. Gordon is trying to replicate Mirror's work. To make a hive mind of Dionysus. Yeah. Well, the boxes have the same color motif as Mimir. They're not, mm-hmm. they're, they're pink. They're not green. Um, and then it cuts to Minerva, who's having a conversation with herself in the mirror. Yeah, that's where she's celebrating about the destroyer having somehow destroyed herself. Uh, and then we get a, one of my favorite uh, title drops in this one, which is My Long Con is Longer Than Your Long Con. <laughs> Yeah, because this is going back 6,000 years at this point. Yeah, so we go back to the sister. God, I wish we had a name for her. Having a conversation with her grandson um, before the final confrontation with Anarchy that happens in the first flashback at the beginning of this volume. And she, this is where she says the thing that I kept re- referencing where she's like, you know, the problem with my sister is she thinks cleanly and deeply but hardly originally. In all things she built upon my work. She will sell godhood to the children as I shared it with her. So her powers are the source of Anarchy's powers. Uh, and she says, I will offer her something she can't resist. I will open my story to allow us both to change rules. I will meddle with them to thwart her. And she will meddle with them to improve her place. And when it's over, before I die, I'll throw her a curse with my final breath. Words to chase her through the ages. Words to drive her wild. And she's like, his, the grandson's like, what final magic have you? And she goes, oh, a simple lie. And then, so it's like... But we have to wait to find out what that simple lie is, right? Yeah, so it seems like her final move is that if my god has a child, I win. But there's actually a different solution that she is... We don't know what it is, but she's banking on eventually one of her gods. uh, She's... Or, like, somebody in general. Because she says we must have faith in humanity, so it doesn't necessarily have to be one of the gods. But somebody figuring out what that solution is. So, that's a big question, looming over the whole thing. Yeah, and then it cuts to Laura going back to her sort of sad hobble. eating apples, which may or may not be important symbolically in this scene. Well, I think, isn't that one of the things that, like, 
Persephone has the apple, and that that's her stay under the yeah, underworld. It looks like a pomegranate, but it's also like it's the tree of forbidden knowledge. I don't know. There's something going well, on there. Well, it kind of also flashes back to when Laura realizes that Lucifer is dead. That beginning where she's kind of in this mindset, this bad mental place, and she's trying to process her feelings, and she's in her bed, and then she's trying to, you know, she does this sort of meditative thing where she clicks her fingers, and like she did in the beginning, before she had her god powers, and she creates that little tiny spark, and then she does it again, and even though she's walked away from being Persephone, she still is able to create a spark. Okay, so a couple things here. One, to be clear, not a flashback, a callback. A callback. Just, this is still, just so people who, if you're not reading the comic, this sequence is set in the current timeline. Right. Yeah, so she has this, like, internal monologue where she's like, I've been all these different things, Ascended, Fangirl, Destroyer, all this, none of it sticks. Like, this thing where she's still trying to figure out what her identity is. Uh, and then, at the end, she's like, what am I? And she, you said, she does the finger snap and a fireball appears in front of her. Like we said, is a callback to when she snapped her fingers before and it seemed like maybe she had lucifer's powers now we know lucifer's not dead so the question is is this something else i have a couple theories All right. one is she does have lucifer's powers lucifer like thinking she was gonna die transferred powers to laura or somehow some way in the moment of her not actual death and that's what's gonna fuck up the ritual because that lucifer head is actually worthless uh, two, other theory. The thing that the sister is banking on humanity figuring out to end the game is how to become, to tap into that power that she has and essentially, like, become a god without having to engage in the game of the recurrence. And Laura, through the sheer power of her fangirlness, has willed herself into being a god by tapping into this primordial story power and that's what this is and that's going to end the game because it's like an outside force she'll get to rewrite the rules because she's going to be on the same level as anarchy and her sister were in ancient times or i don't know what's happening at all those are my theories my, my <laughs> theories here yeah i mean i i i really i don't know that's sort of like the cliffhanger that you're supposed to sort of meditate on until the next volume comes out yeah, but the next volume, I think, is not going to immediately reveal that. I don't think we're going to learn what's going on until the last volume. Because I think the next volume is mostly flashback and interlude stuff. But I think, hopefully, I'm hoping that we learn more about the pattern of the recurrence. It seems like things have gone off the rails. Well, so the big questions we have now, right, are... what Who is the sister? What's her name? What exactly is her deal? Is she God? Like, actual capital G? Like, primordial prime mover god? Or is she something else? What is her secret play that's going to end the game? What's the deal with Laura's powers? How did Laura stop being a god? Can you just do that? And what happened in that field in 2013? Who was that? What's going on? Yeah. Those are all the big questions that are left, right? Is there anything else? Well, there has to be some kind of resolution for Ball and Baphomet. Well, no, I I just meant like plot stuff we don't know. There's lots of of emotional and character arcs that need to be resolved, too. Well, let's think about who could possibly end up being the fourth head. You got Mir Mir. It can't be Woden, because Woden's technically not a god. 
So uh, you have Miramir, Baphomet, who else is left? Ball and Cassandra. Yeah. But I think like they don't need now we know there doesn't need to be a fourth head, right? Because before it was like, well, this for the story to resolve, there does have to be a fourth head, because we were operating under the assumption that this, despite being fucked up, was a ritual to save the earth. But now we know that it's as far as we can tell, not. It's just a ritual for the benefit of anarchy. Which means we don't need a fourth head. It'll it, her head. She'll she'll be the fourth head, and that's how the ritual ends. That's my prediction. Ooh, yeah. Well, stay tuned. I guess it's. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't have. I was sort of baffled and even more confused by the end of the volume when I thought I was going to get some kind of clarity from reading the volume. Yeah. But it's also interesting because now in the circle on the last page, Baphomet is back. Well, yeah, he's only off for one. He dies. We get one picture of the circle where he's a skull. And then the next time we see it, which is only a few pages later in that issue, the Morrigan is a skull. Her symbol has always been a skull, but like a regular skull. Mm -hmm. And he's back. It's weird that his symbol didn't change now that he's reclaimed his identity as Nurgle. But I guess Ball's identity, his symbol hasn't changed, even though we know he's not the shepherd god that he was presenting himself as. So it should be interesting, whatever happens. I'm interested in seeing this interlude. Yeah. Volume. I think we're, we'll, 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 that should probably provide more insight into what's going on. And I'm excited to see how this whole thing ends. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty cool. So just briefly before we wrap up, what do we got on tap for the next episode? At the end of the month, we're going to do The Wicked and the Divine Volume 8. But before that, we're going to do Gentlemen of the Road by Michael Shabon, which I'm really excited to read. I like him a lot. I like, you know, this is him riffing on classic adventure stories and historical romance. Uh, not in the, like, modern understanding. Like, it's not like a period piece where people get it on. But, like, in, like, a classical romance set, but set during a historical period. I think, too, it's, I mean, it's one of the few things that he's written that fits the time, the length of material that we do for the podcast which even though we talk about Michael Chabon a lot we haven't done any of his works because they're usually longer than the novella or long form short story that we usually read yeah so it's nice that we'll be able to get in something I mean it's an atypical work by him but I think it still has a lot of his hallmarks so it'll be a nice way to talk about him as a writer and to just also just read something cool yeah I think so it's very actiony yeah, uh, so uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.